Today we're jumping back into 1 Corinthians. After being out of it for a couple weeks as we've considered some events around Easter, we're jumping into 1 Corinthians. And if you are new to Park Community Church, and some of you have been new over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It was a messy church filled with sin, filled with conflict. The first half of the book dealt with leadership idolatry. People in the church were fighting with each other because they had different preferred leaders. And then the, the chapters after that dealt with sexual immorality, and we talked about those two issues already. And, and this was the mess that made up this church family, fighting over different leaders, fighting over different opinions, fighting over different perspectives, and then all of this sexual immorality, which was wreaking havoc on their church community and church family. And, and this is the mess of the church. But it's a mess that God loves. It's people that create mess, and God loves people. And so today, as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we left off at, in chapter 7, we're picking, back, picking it back up in chapter 8. And as we do, we're going to see Paul shift the topic, shift the issue from leadership idolatry and sexual immorality into Christian liberty. And so the next couple chapters, he's going to deal with Christian liberty, Christian freedoms, and how you and I, as people following Jesus, how we ought to think about liberty and freedom. And so that's where we're going the next few weeks. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read our passage for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul addressing the church in Corinth. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through, through, whom, all are, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no, no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge the weak person is destroyed." the brother for whom Christ died, thus sitting against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. God, would you use this passage to build up your church in love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Well, this, this picture brings me to a happy place. This was one of my favorite meals of all time. It's a massive steak with grilled shrimp over the top, a small little salad covered by a massive piece of garlic bread, and then a drink of my choice, which may be apple juice or maybe something else. And this meal happened at a cabin with my best friend. A few years ago, we got away to a cabin, and we spent some needed time together just in the middle of the winter, like 
out in the woods. We, we wandered in the woods, wandered in the snow. This cabin had a hot tub that we spent a ton of time in. It had this amazing bonfire, not bonfire, it was inside, a fireplace. And we ate this meal by the fire, listening to our favorite music after just spending time together. Just an incredible, incredible time for me. And I love steak. So good. I had to dig out a grill that was buried in seriously two feet of snow in order to grill this steak. And it was so worth it. And I enjoyed this meal. This meal, rep, this picture, rep, whoops, too quick. This picture represents one of my least favorite meals. This is just the salad with a drink, not of my choice, but of the health professional's choice, kombucha. Um, in my office, alone, checking emails. This is the most depressing place for me. To be in my office alone, checking emails, eating a salad, drinking kombucha and water. Not a fan. Now, the reason I show you these pictures is not to, not to help you understand how well-rounded I am that I can have fun with steak, right? And I can be disciplined in my office with a salad. The, the point of me showing these pictures is that as much as I love steak and as much as I love the setting of that other meal, what Paul is teaching us here in this passage is that I must be willing to never do that again for the sake of love if it would help me to love other people well. That I must be willing, I must be able to have the attitude that I would only eat this salad for the rest of my life if it means that other people would be built up in their faith. I must be willing to change out my other drink for a different style drink. I must be willing to change out my steak for a different kind of nourishment if it means that somebody else grows up in their faith. Now, lucky me, I don't have to perpetually give that up, right? And we're going to talk about this. Some of you may even have issue with that last picture that I showed if you think that what was in the cup wasn't apple juice, and it wasn't. We'll talk about this as we go. But the reality is, if my partaking of steak or a stronger drink causes somebody's faith to suffer or struggle, I must be, as much as I love it, I must be willing to give it up. And that's what Paul is getting at here in this text. Our big idea for this morning is that love is greater than liberty. Love is greater than liberty. And Christians must be willing to lay down certain liberties for the sake of love. That's where this passage takes us this morning. And, and it relates to food, it relates to language, it relates to music. Now there's a deeper context here in this passage that we're going to dive into. But there are some low-hanging applications for you and I. And so come with me into the text. We're going to kind of walk through it section by section. The first section here, verses 1 through 3, teach us that knowledge puffs up but love builds up. So Paul starts here by saying, now concerning food offered to idols. This seems pretty foreign to most of us who grew up in the United States, right? We don't have temples in our cities, at least uh, out in the public and known temples, where animals are sacrificed. That would seem barbaric to us, right? It would seem crazy if down the street, well, down the street there is a butcher shop, animals are being slaughtered, but they're not being slaughtered as an as a act of worship to a pagan god. In Corinth, in the first century, this, is what, this was just normal. This was their culture, right? There were all these different pagan temples, and these pagan temples would also work as like the local butcher shop. They would also work as like the local community center. And so people could rent out the, pay, the, the temple. They could use it for like a wedding celebration. They could use it for a family get-together. They could use it for a, a social gathering. And at that temple, 
the, the, the priests and the people who ran the pagan religion, they would sacrifice animals regularly to their gods, and then they would use the meat from that animal sacrifice for these parties. Or they would sell the meat in the market square. Think about that, Think about that next time you go to Cub or Nelson's and buy your meat. Think about that next time you go to like a wedding celebration and somebody puts a plate in front of you like, I'm really glad that this didn't just come from a pagan temple where it was sacrificed to some god, right? That's, that's their context. That's their reality. And so 1 Corinthians, this letter, is Paul responding to the church in Corinth. And if you haven't been here for the past few months, um, you haven't caught this, but in Acts chapter 18, we can see that Paul moved into Corinth. He lived in that city for a while, planted a church, started a church, and then he moved off to other cities to start other churches. And so he's the founding pastor of this church, but now he's, he's gone. He's not in the city. And so they are appealing to their founding pastor for some wisdom, for some guidance. They are, as I said, they're a messy church with conflict and division and they have arguments over, not over like carpet color and pew style. Their arguments are over food sacrifice to, to, to pagan gods in, in temples, right? Their arguments are over sexuality. Their arguments are over leadership style. And so they're appealing to their founding pastor, asking for his wisdom, asking for his insight. And they had, they, there had been an oral report back to Paul, and that's the first couple chapters deal with the oral report. Chloe, one of the members of the church, had sent word to Paul about some of the issues that the church was dealing with. And then there's also a letter that the church had written to Paul asking his input on some of the issues that they're dealing with. And now here in chapter 8, when he says, Now concerning food offered to idols... Most commentators and scholars and biblical historians believe that in the letter that the church in Corinth had written to Paul, they had asked him about this issue. Would you speak into this? Because we're, we're torn in our, in our church community. Some people think that a Christian should be able to eat food sacrificed to idols, and other people think you shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. Some people think drink Stronger drink is okay. Some people think stronger drink is not okay. Some people think playing cards is okay. Some people think playing cards is not okay. Some people think watching a certain type of movie or show is okay. Some people think it's not okay, right? This is kind of the squabble, and it's deeper than just that surface-level movie drink stuff. But this is the issue, right? You've, if you've been around church for any length of time, you know that some people are okay with a certain dress style at church, and other people are not okay. Some people are okay with... I'm not going to go into specifics. Almost got too close to home. Let's keep going. So now concerning food offered to idols, they're appealing to Paul to get his take on this. And Paul says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. It's in quotes there because he's appealing to a certain section in this church of people who have a little more knowledge about the situation. They're a little further along in their faith. They understand the realities at play a little bit more. And so he's appealing to them. He's saying, now all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's saying that, that just because you may have the right insight onto a particular issue does not necessarily mean that the right way to handle that insight is to enforce it on others. Knowledge in this context relates to eating meat sacrificed to idols. And the, the knowledge that they possess is that it is okay for them to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But he warns them, this knowledge, 
this, this more advanced understanding of the faith that you have, it could puff you up. You could become proud. You could become arrogant. In fact, you are. That was one of the issues in this church. That the people who had been studying, thinking, learning, growing, growing their head knowledge about the dynamics and the nuances and the details of the faith, they had become puffed up. And so in their head knowledge, they are actually destroying the church. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul warns that this knowledge can puff us up, right? And I think many of you have probably experienced this the last couple years in one particular way, at least I have, and I know a handful of you have because we've had these conversations like family text threads through the season of COVID and politics. You're on a text thread with a bunch of family members and aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters and parents and, and uh, like the newest rule has just changed and people throw in an article or a, or a podcast that they read about it, right? They have some knowledge. Hey, so-and-so said this about masks. So-and-so said this about vaccines. So-and-so said this about whatever the issue might be, right? And you just drop that little article into the family text thread and does it help anyone? No. All it does is reinforce the feelings of the person who dropped it in or, or it's on social media, you drop in that link, right? Thinking it's gonna change people's minds. I promise you, it's never changed anyone's minds. All it's done is made them frustrated, and it's made you more validated in your own feelings, right? This is how it works. This is knowledge as it puffs up. It actually doesn't create healthy conversation and dynamics and relationships. It doesn't build up. It puffs up. You want to be right, and so therefore, you make your point known. I have a greater perspective. I have a greater understanding. I have a greater opinion. I have a greater source of truth, and so therefore, I'm just going to truth bomb you that's the type of knowledge that puffs up. Meanwhile here, Paul says love builds up. So on the flip side of the coin, he says that love, and this word for love is agape, it's in an affection. It means to show affection to someone. It actually means to, to give preference to someone. It, like the, the practical application of it is what James says, listen before you speak. That's agape love. That's giving preference to your opinion, your perspective, your voice. And so Paul here is saying, be careful with knowledge because knowledge can puff you up, but love, agape, on the reverse, it builds up. Think about the, think about the other side of the coin, right? Rather than dropping into that family text thread or onto your social media feed, that article that you think is going to fix everyone, all these idiots who you do life with, Right? Rather than that, what if you had a meal with these people? What if you asked questions? What if you tried to understand their perspective, understand their opinion, understand why they're coming from where they're coming from? That's a type of love that builds up, a, a conversation with questions and curiosity. It's what Paul is getting at here. And then I love verse 2, just this humility, right? He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What a good reminder. We are finite. We are limited. Our ability to comprehend and understand and to put all the pieces together, it's just limited. And sometimes the more that you know or the more voices that you hear, the more confusing things get. So church family, let's humble ourselves and be reminded that we don't yet know as we ought to know. There will come a day in the future where God reveals 
all things to us. He will return or call you home. And, and, and as the scriptures say right now, it's like we're, like we're looking at a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. We'll see the Lord clearly face to face, but also everything will make sense. And so keep in mind as we walk through this that knowledge tends to puff up, but love builds up and our knowledge is limited and that ought to humble us. And then verse three, I love verse three. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What an incredible reminder One of the songs that we sang this morning talked about how God knows our name. Isn't this the the greater truth? Like, don't get into a squabble with your church members, with your family members, with your coworkers, with your neighbors about what type of knowledge you have that can trump the situation or overpower their stupid understanding of this really significant situation, right? Instead, love, show love, show preference, be humble, knowing that the article that you just sent may actually be proved wrong in the future. And ultimately, verse 3, keep in mind, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is the greater thing. Love God. To be known by God and to receive God's love. Because love builds up. Your head knowledge about God does not remind your soul what it needs, that you are known and loved by your creator and your father and your friend. Your head knowledge, it puffs you up to think like, well, that person in that church is wrong with their doctrine. That person in that church is wrong with their doctrine. That person over here, they're applying that the wrong way. These people, their practice is is iffy at best. That's what head knowledge tends to do. It tends to puff you up. You compare and you try to one-up. But love, agape, it, it, it builds up. Loving God, receiving God's love, and being reminded that we are known by him. You are a son or a daughter. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head or the lack thereof, and he loves you. And so that's verses 1 through 3. As we move into verses 4 through 8, we see that there is a right mature knowledge regarding the issue at hand. And so, so Paul actually dives into this, right? There is a debate. Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols or can we not? Paul dives into it. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, right? So he starts with this greater truth, like be careful about your knowledge. It puffs you up. Work towards love because love builds you up. The church isn't just a knowledge-seeking, head-growing place of doctrine and rightness. It's a place of love and relational connection. So he moves from that into, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. This is the the right or mature knowledge for a Christian. That an idol is simply a a little figure made by human hands. It's gold, it's wood, it's silver, it's something made by human hands. And and in the ancient world, these idols, they would often think that these idols are animated by, by spiritual beings, by other gods, by other Elohim, these spiritual creatures and they would think that an idol would come and it would, or that this God would come and animate an idol. And the idol is a portal to the supernatural world. It's a way to connect with that false God. And so Paul here is saying that we know that an idol has no real existence. It's made by human hands. That there is only one God, right? And so there are actually other spiritual beings. The Bible teaches this. There's angels, there's demons, there's other spiritual beings. And, and we need to be careful with idols because sometimes the way that people use idols, it can, it can 
and we're going to get into this, Paul will get into this, it, it can help bring people into a dark place where they're not trusting the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and Yahweh, the one true God who reigns above all others. But his point here is saying that we know that this idol has no real existence, that there's one, one God, right? For although there, are, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, lowercase g, and many lords, there are other spiritual beings, there are other lords or, or spiritual beings or human figures where people will, will, to be a lord means to be a master. So in this context, oftentimes the political rulers, they would kind of have this godlike status and people actually in the ancient world believed that political leaders oftentimes took on deity. And, and then the, 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 the citizens of that country would, would worship their their king, their leaders as Lord, thinking that they're animated by some kind of spiritual God. And so Paul is saying, there, there are other spiritual beings and there are other lords, masters that you guys have bowed down to. Verse 6, yet for us, for a Christian, this is the, the new way to think about life for all of you new converts in Corinth who are coming out of this pagan background. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist, right? That's his point here. This is the, this is the right Christian doctrine. This is the mature Christian belief. It's to not be fearful about idols and other so-called gods and lords, because there's one God who reigns above all. His name is Yahweh. He's revealed himself to us throughout the Old Testament, and now ultimately in his son Jesus, the Messiah, he has come. He has walked among us. He was crucified upon a cross. He, he rose on the third day. He sent his Holy Spirit. He's built this church, breathed it into existence, and also he breathed all of creation into existence. That's the one God whom you should fear, and this fear is respect, and it's awe because he loves you enough to come down, condescend, and die for you. Amen? So that's the mature perspective. That is the right Christian developed perspective. Verse 7, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Remember the context of this church. There's a ton of new converts who are coming out of a pagan background. And, and they're baby Christians. They're, they're just discovering the faith. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So he's saying that in this church community, there are people who have recently come to faith in Jesus. They've recently joined the church. And before that, they were going to these various temples, worshiping other gods, taking a part in a sacrificial system where they were sacrificing these animals to other gods and worshiping. And, and for them, that was a way of life that was not in line with Christian doctrine, Christian life, that was not in line with claiming that Yahweh is the God above all gods and Jesus is all-sufficient. And so for them, eating food offered to idols is a great danger because they can't separate. At this point in their faith walk, they can't separate from eating food that had been offered to idols from worshiping God as one. It's too intertangled for them. 
And just so that we don't have a little bit of American snobbery, this is still a very real deal for most cultures around the world. Like you go to other countries and, 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 and do life among other cultures, there's a lot of food law and concern around this. And so it may feel like an outdated thing for us Westerners, but this is a very real issue for the global church. Verse 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And see, he just says, it's, it's not a big deal. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols if you want. If your conscience allows you to, you're actually no worse off if you eat this meat offered to idols. God's not, God's not up in heaven, well, up in heaven, right, but also present among you in the Holy Spirit. He's not there being like, shame, shame, shame on you. You're breaking the 11th commandment here. No, it, it doesn't matter because these idols aren't even real and this whole worship of these false gods, it, it, you're above it. You worship Yahweh, the one true God, and so who cares if you eat food sacrificed to idols? It, you're no better off if you do or you don't. Some people think they're pious, right? Their knowledge has puffed them up. I know God so well, I know Christian doctrine so well that I can walk into that temple, I can buy that meat sacrificed to idols, and I can eat it because I'm better than that. He's like, sure, fine, but you're not a better Christian for that. And some people are very hands-off, whether it's out of they're, they're younger in their faith and they can't disentangle food sacrifice to idols and worship of Jesus alone. So they're, so they're hands-off. Other people are hands-off because they're like, they want to respect it, these people. And Paul is saying, you're no better off if you do or, you're, or you don't, right? But what we need to get here in verses 4 through 8 is that the right mature perspective or knowledge regarding the issue at hand is that it's not a hill to die on. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so if that's the conclusion, you would expect Paul then to say, so weaker brother and sister, grow up and start eating meat, wouldn't you? Clearly he's saying the right knowledge is to not demonize the eating of meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. That is actually the right mature perspective. But Paul doesn't drop a podcast into the feed so that everyone would learn that perspective. He doesn't send an article to the church saying, see, this is right, y'all better fall in line and get on my page and get on the right perspective. And most of the time that we share things, it's, it's like a developing opinion, right? It's not even a concrete, for sure, truth. Paul here has a concrete, for sure, truth that it is okay for a person who believes that Jesus is Lord to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, yet in that he doesn't tell the weaker or younger Christian to just get over it and to start eating meat. In fact, he does quite the opposite. He tells the people with the knowledge, he tells the people with the right and the mature perspective to actually lay down their liberty for the sake of love. So that's what we see here at the end of the chapter. The right mature way to have the right mature knowledge. Isn't that good for us to keep in mind? That just because you have the keys to truth does not mean that you can use that truth in any which way you want, whenever you want, however you want. Truth doesn't trump relational nuance and care and knowledge of the situation. That's what Paul means by knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
a truth bomb doesn't actually build anyone or a community up in love. It destroys. But understanding the context, knowing the person, knowing the background, knowing the situation, that makes all the difference in the world. Look at what Paul says, verse 9. He says, but take care that this right of yours, this liberty, this right of yours, as a Christian, you have this right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's a right. But be careful that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Like they're, they're young in the faith, they're observing, they're, they're watching your example, they're following your lead and they just came out of this temple worship and this idolatry where, where they can't disentangle this yet and they think food sacrificed to idols, eating that meat is worship of another god. You know it's not, but they don't yet know it's not. He doesn't say your first job is to them teach them. Now, he will go on to teach, right? There is a place to help. This is part of discipleship. It's helping to grow people up into the faith. But our first response is not to say, actually, you're wrong. Let me tell you what's right. It's to say, I'm going to defer to what seems right to you in this situation so that I can build goodwill and trust with you and that I can teach you the greater truth later on in love in a context where it's not hurtful, but it's helpful. And so... He, he's saying, um, verse 10, if anyone sees you in the temple eating, eating in an idol's temple, will they not be encouraged to do the same? Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Their, 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 their clear path to worshiping Jesus as all-sufficient has been clouded by you exercising your freedom, your liberty, your right without love, without understanding And then he says, thus sinning against your brother. Um, Okay, so this person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Just keep that in mind. Jesus died for this person. Am I willing to die to my personal right for this person? Jesus actually physically died for their salvation. Am I willing to die to my own wants, to my own preferences, to my own advanced knowledge on a particular issue that isn't salvific. It's just a a matter of, it's a matter of maturity. Am I willing to die to it for a moment or for a season of time that this person would grow? Verse 12, it says, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And keep in mind that when we sin against others, the ultimate offense is that we're sinning against Christ who made that person in the image of God and died for that person on their behalf. So let's be careful with our words. Let's be careful with how we treat other people because when we sin against another person, we're sinning against Christ who died for that person. And this word sin here, it it, it gets, um, some people kind of see sin as like a boogeyman word. It just means missing the mark. That's what this word means. So really he's saying when, when you don't consider where your brother or sister is at in their faith walk and you don't, you don't lay down your own liberties or your own knowledge for the sake of loving them in that moment, you're missing the mark. Because the mark is for you to love that person into truth, not to demand that person to conform to truth. And you sin, you miss the mark against Christ when you do that. Verse 13. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so there is a right or mature way to have the right mature knowledge. And this leads us to end with the question here of like, why, when, and how? And I can't answer all that, right? It's nuanced. You need to get to know the people. Like, even me showing a picture of me eating steak with a drink in it, for some, that, that, that might verge on the line of searing your conscience or, or, or communicating something to a weaker brother. And I really wrestled with, do I, do I share that or not? And I, I think here's the point, is that we can't be hypocritical, right? We can't be hypocritical. So if I enjoy a steak, but there's somebody in our church who thinks that steak, eating steak is a sin, and, and I, I don't just show a picture of a steak on a screen and be like, well, you better grow up. You're immature, and I'm mature, so you should just come eat some steak with me. No, the, the reality is, is that, is that we get, the how we do this is in the person's presence, Right? And so I can't be two-faced. You shouldn't be two-faced. You shouldn't try to trick one group of people into thinking that, well, I don't eat steak. I don't drink coffee. I don't have gluten. Or I only do my devos in the morning. Or I don't drink alcoholic beverages. Or, like, you can't try to get one group of people who you perceive see this as an issue. You can't try to trick them to think that you don't do that. And then among this group, you do that. No, we have, to, we have to be honest and say, Here, here's my convictions. This, that, not this, yes, that. When I'm around you, I know your situation, I know your background. And so I'm not going to do that because it might be a stumbling block for you. I have some friends who have had an issue with substance abuse. I wouldn't have a drink with them because it, it, it's hard for them to not have a drink with me. And then if they have one drink, they want to have five drinks. And it's hard, and I don't want to put them in that situation. And so for me, my love for them has to override my liberty to have a drink. And so that's the exercise of this. It's it's not a one-size-fits-all rule. That's one of the hard things about the Christian faith and also the amazing things about the Christian faith is that we live in this tension where it requires us to have real relationships. And to get to know people's backgrounds, to get to know people's temptations, to get to know people's struggles, to get to know what things I might do that could lead you away from worshiping Jesus, and what things I might do that could help you in your worship of Jesus. And so when do we lay down our liberty for the sake of love? We do it when it hinders the faith of the other person. And there's not a one-size-fits-all for that. It's personal It's through relationship, it's through knowledge of that person and even conversation of that person. Hey, does this help you? Does this hurt you? That's when we do it, when it hinders the faith. Not not the religious tradition, and we need to do some work to disentangle some of that, right? Because sometimes we, we, we too closely tie religious tradition into like the strength of our faith and we need to untie some of that. We actually know like, hey, is this helping to build your faith or to weaken your faith? I don't really care about religious tradition. Jesus overthrew much of it. So that's when we do it. Why do we do it? The point, is to, the point of giving up our liberties for the sake of love is to show people that Jesus is all-sufficient. That, that he is so much greater than my liberty. He is so much greater than my opinion on masks 
or vaccinations or the freedom to drink alcohol or the freedom to play cards or the freedom to go to a movie or the freedom to have a cigarette or the freedom to whatever it is, Jesus is all sufficient. He's so much greater and so I'm willing to give up anything so that somebody else might see Jesus as glorious and all sufficient, right? That's, that's why we lay down liberties for the sake of love. And then how, again, it's in their presence. It doesn't necessarily, and I love here, Paul says that I will never eat meat again if I make a brother stumble. That's, that's, his, that's his MO, that's his knee-bent reaction. I'll give this up forever. However, Paul continued to eat meat in the right context with the right people. And he's not being two-faced. He's not hiding it from this group and, and, and doing it among this group. It's just his heart posture is that I will give up anything if it means somebody would come to know Jesus Christ and cling to him as supreme. And then he nuances out what, you know, through the why, through the how, through the when. And so that's what we're called to do, brothers and sisters. Paul, in this section of Scripture, and we're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks, is calling us to grow up into maturity, and to be willing to lay down our liberties for the sake of love. Jesus was willing to die for you and I for the sake of love. Right? He makes that point at the end here. If we're not careful, if we put liberty before love, we might destroy what Christ has been building. We might be tearing down the very person whom Christ died for. And so, in following Jesus... You and I must be willing to die to our liberties for the sake of love, love of neighbor. So this morning, I want to invite you to come to the table in the little package in front of you in the pew. Come to the table and be reminded that Jesus laid down his life for you. And we come to the table every week at Park Community Church as a way to both remember his sacrifice, he lived a perfect life, life that we're incapable of living, died a sinner's death in our place and on our behalf. And so we remember him through communion. We remember his sacrifice for us, but we also remember his example, right? Jesus is our substitution. He is a sacrifice paid on our behalf in our place, but he also lived his life as an example for you and I to follow. And in the cross, we see him both substituted in our place And we see him also both giving an example of what it looks like for Christians to lay down their liberties, to lay down their rights for the sake of love. So I'm going to invite you, when you feel led and ready to take communion, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is here to remind you, the wafer is there to remind you that his body was given for you. And the cup to remind you that his blood was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me pray then the worship team will come back up and you can take as you feel led and ready. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that you laid down your rights on the cross for us. Lord, that you you surrendered your will to the will of the Father. Jesus, we come to the table again this morning to remember the sacrifice that you made in our place on our behalf. And also to look at you as an example of how we ought to love others by laying down our very lives. We love you, Jesus. May you nourish us with this meal as a reminder of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.